Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. Uh, hello, Caroline. Hi. And what are we discussing this week, Carrie? What are we getting to the bottom of, or <laughs> getting to the beginning of? Well, uh, at the top here, I just want to talk about uh, this week in podcasting for our show, because it's been kind of a big week for us, hasn't it? Hugely exciting. Yes, I didn't want to brag, but by all means. We're let's... not bragging, we're just telling. Uh, yeah, Carrie, you have been working your little butt off and getting a little. sort of a little media blitz going. <laughs> well, Halloween does help with that. It's the one time of year where everyone wants spooky facts and, and all that stuff. Right, as, but all year round, you want those things. Yes, of course. And are providing those things. Always. But this is the time of year where people are actually receptive. So, um, we were very pleasantly surprised to find that we had been reviewed in Crime Monthly, which is a magazine based in the UK, all about true crime. It's the biggest crime magazine that I know of. And they gave our show a great review and even called out the Travis Walton episode saying it's not true crime, but it's still a, a really good coverage of that case. Yeah, I was surprised the one they went for was a, yeah, something that definitely didn't happen. <laughs> Allegedly. So, yes, so that was awesome seeing everything in print, too, because we got a copy of the magazine. That was really cool. Um, we had the Connecticut Post, which is our state's big newspaper, do a story on us. Married couple that covers the true crime and the bazaar and all that stuff. Yeah, a little one of our engagement photos from the cemetery <laughs> right there in the paper. It was nice. Yes. Um, and, and they did a great job talking about um, what we do and also how we like to cover local cases and, and Connecticut-based New England cases as well. So that was really awesome. And then uh, a national a, a national United States publication picked us up, Carrie. Yes, Newsweek Online also reached out to ask some Halloween-based questions about the history of Halloween, which we may be talking about today. So something you may have already been researching at the time? Yes, I certainly was, and I certainly already did know a lot about it. But um, we were referred to in Newsweek... Again, online, not in the magazine, but we were referred to as experts in all things spooky and supernatural, which I am going to use on every byline, every resume from now on. And I think you are just more than anything bemused by. Uh, amused, bemused, <laughs> amused. Uh, the idea that you are an expert in spooky and supernatural probably was something that never would have come across your radar before. Well, at this point, I have sunk dozens and dozens of hours into becoming said expert. <laughs> Tens of hours. Yeah, so that was awesome. That was a um, an article about Halloween history and also how it's celebrated around the world. And, um, and then the latest thing is that we're featured on a Pocket Casts playlist. So that's a uh, Pocket Casts is a podcast app. And this playlist is uh, something like Ghosts, Monsters, and Bigfoot, Oh My. And it's like their Halloween playlist. And, and we're those on are, there. Those are all things we've covered. So Absolutely. we certainly deserve a spot there. Yeah. And they gave us one. And we're, we're up against, not against, uh, along with um, a lot of other great, great podcasts. So it's a, it's a great honor. And if you use Pocket Casts, um, you know, let us know if you saw us on there. 
Very exciting. And if you are new here, if you were somehow brought to us by all that... Uh, that's That would be great. And welcome. Absolutely. Now, for this week, I've been intending on doing this episode for quite a while now. And Sean, can you believe that it's, it's our third Halloween doing this show? Uh, I can only because I was listening to our earlier Halloween episodes uh, <laughs> yesterday, so... Oh, I see. Yes, this is our third one. So better late than never, we're going to be discussing the long, strange history of the holiday we know today as Halloween. We've always done appropriate. I mean, we try to keep it uh, extra ghostly and extra uh, monster focused in the sure. month of October. Sure, absolutely. We've talked about Halloween killings yes. in the past. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, let's take it all the way back, Carrie. Where, where does... It's your Christmas, isn't it? Where does your Christmas come from? (laughs) Well, first, uh, speaking of things that I love, we're going to start with a little bit of fun, I think. Um, Sean, what are your favorite Halloween costumes that you've ever done in your life? It could be as a kid and as an adult, whatever. Oh, I think, I don't even have to really think about it. It's our first Halloween together. I Mm -hmm. dressed up as the man with no name, as Clint Eastwood from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Mm -hmm. And it was really... Like screen accurate, basically. It costume. was great. I had the poncho. I had the perfect hat. Listen, you had me to impress, and I'm I'm all about doing screen accurate costumes. So well, and you were a very not screen accurate, thankfully, uh, Pennywise. <laughs> I was like cute Pennywise. I did my own version of the makeup. Um, I didn't really love. Not that the makeup wasn't good, but I didn't love the design of the makeup in the new one. And I didn't want to have a big old head and buck teeth like he did. So I kind of did a combination of the new costume with the Pennywise from the Tim Curry version. Yeah, you did kind of a slutty Tim Curry, also known as a Tim Curry. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, That was definitely a fun one. I did a great Buffy um, my freshman year of high school, that was very screen accurate, so much so that I had to have a name tag with who I was because it was from the episode Prophecy Girl where she's wearing like a prom dress and everything. And I had a stake, but I kind of had to be like, yeah, I'm Buffy, I'm Buffy. But that was one of my favorites. Um, did you have any as a kid that you especially loved? Well, as a kid, I, I adored uh, the Lon Chaney Jr. film, The Wolfman, mm-hmm. as opposed to all the other Lon Chaney Jr. films that, <laughs> that eight-year-olds love. Uh, and so I did dress as his Wolfman one year. I don't think I've ever seen a picture of that. I would love to see that. Oh, it's, you know, the plastic mask with the rubber oh, band on the cute. back, you know, um, and a onesie, like a silk silky kind of a onesie that that looked like it was a shirt and pants and the shirt was all ripped up uh, i loved being the wolfman that year that's a very distinct memory well i need to find a picture of that uh my nana made me a snow white costume one year like hand sewed it and it was amazing and in fifth grade i was the bride of frankenstein it was just very fun to be that again what was it? It was 2019, right? It was the last normal Halloween. Um, so I was the Bride of Frankenstein again with you as Frankenstein. So that was fun to kind of revisit one of my childhood costumes. But uh, yeah, the idea of wearing costumes for Halloween goes much further back than just our childhoods or even our parents' childhoods. In fact, it goes all the way back to ancient times, to the origin of Halloween, way up in the Celtic countryside, Back to where your ancestors came from, Sean. Uh, Yes, I was raised believing that I was about like, uh, on my mother's side, a quarter Italian, a quarter German, maybe a quarter like Scotch and English, a quarter uh, Native American, and then everything was Irish on my dad's side. Mm -hmm. 
it turns out there's no Italian or or na- certainly native blood <laughs> in my mom's uh, side. It's it's all basically Scotch Irish. It's a it's a and English. Yeah, and English. So yes, it's a, it's a Celtic uh, it's a Celtic nightmare over here. Well, you probably had many different kinds of ancestors practicing the ancient version of Halloween, and I'm kind of jealous of that. But sure, th- this is where you would paint yourself blue and uh, <laughs> uh, kill a bunch of Saxons. No, no. Uh, But for the episode today, I'll be using three main books as sources, Halloween, An American Holiday, and American History by Leslie Pratt Banatine, Death Makes a Holiday, A Cultural History of Halloween by David J. Scal, and Halloween Nation, Behind the Scenes of America's Fright Night, also by Leslie Pratt Banatine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, (laughs) So definitely check those books out if you'd like to learn more. Um, That's Halloween Nation, right? No, that's Zombie Nation. Oh, but they're Halloween. The <laughs> Hopefully, Do you think that song is from Shaun of the for Dead. For me, it is. I don't know like, where else is it from. Like a stadium where they play football, but it's really football. No, I feel like it's from the radio in the nineties. No, no, yeah, right there. It's with... from Shaun of the Dead and from stadiums. Remember when we used to hear Sandstorm by Darude on the on the radio? It was like that era. Uh, my, my parents were built different. It was all star 99.9 and uh, classic rock for us. Also uh, WFAN, Mike and the Mad Dog. Also your definition of classic rock starts in the fifties and ends in the mid seventies. Yes. <laughs> Not anymore though. When they start playing black parade on classic rock stations, that's when I, that's when I say goodbye to the world. And I take my leave of this place. This probably isn't the time or place to discuss it, but I don't think we'll ever get there. I think classic rock is a genre now, and it's locked in. Okay. Well, I'm fine with that. Hopefully this episode will be a great primer for you guys and a guaranteed win for any Halloween trivia contests you may be participating in this week, including those coming to our Halloween party. Um, You know, you've got a leg up if you listen. We'll know if you listened, because... There's going to be a lot of questions from this episode on our trivia. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Well, I love rewarding. I love kind of nepotistically rewarding <laughs> friends who uh, uh, do their homework and listen to our podcast. Absolutely. So let's begin at the very beginning with the Druids, of course. No one knows who they were <laughs> or what they were doing. <laughs> Hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus Christ, Celtic tribes folk in Ireland, Wales, Brittany, England, Scotland, and northern France lived and worked, devoted to a life of mostly farming, herding, and hunting. Before the time of worshipping a one true god, the Celts had a diverse array of deities which made up Celtic mythology. Often these gods and goddesses were part of their practice of nature worship and could be divided into both general and more localized categories. Many of these gods presided over important parts of Celtic life, from the sea and rivers to healing and agriculture, to very specific things like wells, wine, and pigs. Uh, Now, how much of this... Where do we know this stuff from? They weren't writing anything down, right? There are like inscriptions and carvings on things. Um, When I was looking, I mean, I was just kind of looking at the Wikipedia about Celtic deities because I wasn't going to dive too deep in. But um, some of them are like, we only know about this from one carving from this place, you know. So some gods might have been widely worshipped, either on a village-wide or bigger level. And we just don't know about them because they didn't write these down. But we know about them by word of mouth, folklore. And monuments and things. Exactly. 
So the Celtic celebrations similarly had to do with nature, and their two most major events coincided with the changes of the seasons. The onset of winter, when the herds would be brought into shelter and the harvest ended, and the onset of summer, when the herds would be released to pasture and the harvest began. Now, the latter, which the summer one, was called Beltan or Beltane, and was observed around May 1st. So, you know, some people might know it as May Day. The former, which we'll be discussing today, was called Samhain, not Samhain, as it looks like written, but Samhain. Now, Samhain is meant to, uh, Samhain is thought to mean summer's end because, you know, there are little like shreds of other words in there, but there's really no conclusive proof that this is what it means. Um, now, Carrie, I don't know if you've heard of a video game called Assassin's Creed Valhalla. I have from you playing it for the last month. Uh, yes. And in that game, I went through a whole plotline that was about Samhain because mm-hmm. it takes place in the 900s and you're a Viking who's... Yeah, you came into our room all proud. I just celebrated Samhain. Yeah, uh, so uh, tell me how accurate this is. In that game, I was given a cloak and like a deer skull to put on as a costume. Mm-hmm. And then I had to go around singing at people's uh, house doors and they would give me ale. Um, and then eventually we all took the mayor and put him in a wicker man and burned him uh, to, to give us better harvests in the future. It's fairly accurate. Um, we'll, we'll get to, that's kind of like a step up from where it really began, but we'll get to it. So back in these days, winter came early and lasted close to six months. So the years were really more split down the middle than they are now. Back then, winter arrived in early November, and so Samhain was observed then too, usually from the evening of October 31st to the evening of November 1st, because the Celtic day began and ended with sunset. So, a little different than what we do today, obviously. And this was also basically their New Year's celebration, because the beginning of winter was the beginning of the New Year to them. So, it was a really joyous occasion with feasting and revelry. This communal feast was symbolically shared with their ancestral dead from the very beginning and was quite a sacred festival to the Celts. I guess this is coming at the end of harvest season kind of too, right? Yes, this is the end of the harvest. Um, this is, you know, it's winter. It's it, Everything's dark and, and cold and you're but, kind of buckling down and, and eating the harvest that you harvested. Yeah, because you have more food at this point than you will any other time in the year. Yes, Great time for a party. Absolutely. The Celtic people believed that the dead rose on the eve of Samhain and that they, along with demons, were free to then roam the earth. According to Leslie Pratt Banatine, quote, Since spirits were believed to know the secrets of the afterlife and the future, the priests of the Celts, the Druids, held that on the eve of Samhain predictions had more power and omens could be read with more clarity. They divined the health of the tribe, the wisdom of a proposed move, the right time to make magic, or the key to curing a sickness. Samhain marked the start of the season that rightly belonged to spirits, a time when nights were long and dark fell early. It was a frightening time for people who were entirely subject to the forces of nature, and who were superstitious about the unknown, with only a primitive, sympathetic magic system to rely on for comfort. Samhain was a night of mystical glory. And it uh, presumably started falling out of favor uh, when Christianity came around? Uh, well, we're going to get to that, but not in the way you would think. 
But at this point, to allay their fears, Celts would make offerings to the spirit world in hopes that their deceased loved ones would return home. Would they burn the mare in a wicker man? (laughs) Well, there were sometimes sacrifices of animals. Um, I think the wicker man concept is more popular culture, or at least they kind of threw that in there to sort of be an easy shortcut to like what they're doing. Yeah, uh, listeners, this is like, you know, the horror movie, The Wicker Man, where yes. a village will, uh, usually for a better harvest or something, build a giant man of, you know, sticks and hay and, and wicker and put somebody inside it, usually somebody important, and uh, burn them up. Yeah. So the offerings to the spirit world that they would make included food and wine set out for the spirits. And this is much like the Mexican tradition of Dia de los Muertos where the participants build ofrendas, which are altars devoted to the departed. But um, getting back to Halloween costumes and kind of your experience in Assassin's Creed Valhalla, uh-huh. uh, because of the superstitious nature of the Celts and their fear of attracting the wrong kind of spirits, you know, they only wanted their ancestors or whatever, they didn't want any other hangers-on or demons, They would often wear ghoulish disguises in the hopes that any dark entities would mistake them for one of their own and pass them and their homes by. Masked villagers would also participate in a parade to trick the spirits and lead them away to the town limits. So it's basically literally like in a zombie movie where you cover yourself in like zombie guts so they don't smell your living body. Yes. (laughs) It's like you're hoping that they think you're a ghost too. I'll do it all night. (laughs) Samhain was also one of the original fire festivals and no not the one where a bunch of rich people got trapped on an island with shitty food and music oh you you just mean a party with torches (laughs) yes because the sun grew weaker in the colder months the Celts feared that someday it may leave them forever damning them to a forever night as they felt that like begets like and um, it's kind of similar to the pagan idea of karma you know the threefold law they would light bonfires high on the hills to try and fuel the waning sun. So kind of like a tribute to say like, son, we like you, come back. Is that threefold thing, that's, yeah, if you put out magic with bad intentions, it'll come back at you three threefold. Is that a modern pagan idea or does that come from somewhere? No, it's, it's pretty old. I mean, I haven't studied exactly where that comes from, but it's it's a pretty old concept. This tradition is still observed even today with people lighting bonfires in parts of Scotland and Wales. Druids, like I said before, would also sacrifice animals on the fire and predict the future using their entrails. And some suspect that criminals sentenced to death were also sacrificed during these rituals. We can agree entrails are more metal than tea leaves. Uh, Yeah, I would say so. Um, so we can see here the origins of so many traditions already. You have costumes, masquerade parades, divination, bonfires, and belief in the spirits. But more additions would come with the conquering of the Celtic lands by the Romans, which merged Druidic beliefs with Roman mythology and eventually Christianity and Catholicism. The Romans also celebrated a festival on November 1st, this one in tribute to the goddess Pomona, the deity of orchards and the harvest. Pomona was celebrated with feasts featuring apples, nuts, grapes, and other orchard fruits, marking when these harvests would be stored away for winter. 
Once Romans and Celts began to inhabit the same villages throughout the British Isles, the festivals eventually naturally merged. And so here we get the inclusion of apples with Halloween and autumn festivities like apple picking and bobbing for apples. So yeah, we're still doing all this stuff to worship nature and a Roman god. But the Christian god wanted to get in on the action too, as he, capital H, is wont to do. Well, he gets in everything. Of course. And I'm using the term Christian God in here to stand for the God of Christian theology specifically, uh, the guy we might imagine sitting in the clouds, omnipotent, omnipresent, white-bearded, and full of either fury or mercy, kind of depends on the testament. (laughs) No, it depends on what you're doing, mostly. Well, yeah. And very importantly, I'm referring to the Christian God because he was also believed to be the father of Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the one who got the whole ball rolling when it came to Christianity spreading through Europe. So from the 1st through 4th centuries, Christianity moved across the Roman Empire when Emperor Constantine officially declared the religion legal, and thousands of pagans were baptized into it. Um, He officially declared it the state religion of Rome. of course. It was already legal to practice, right? I think. The Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, now superseded the pantheon of Roman gods and pagan nature worship, or at least they wanted it to. Much like with many other big Christian and Catholic holidays, we won't even get into Easter's pagan origins right now, the church decided to assimilate the existing pagan traditions of Samhain into a new Christian holiday rather than attempt to completely eradicate the centuries of tradition that everyone had been used to. Well, sure, the Easter's around the solstice. Right. Well, it's Ostara, which means Easter, and we'll, we'll get there eventually. Uh, Pope Gregory I declared, Let the shrines of idols by no means be destroyed. Let water be consecrated and sprinkled in the temples. Let altars be erected, so that the people, not seeing their temples destroyed, might displace error and recognize and adore the true God. And because they were wont to sacrifice to devils, some celebration should be given in exchange for this. They should celebrate a religious feast and worship God by their feasting, so that, still keeping outward pleasure, they may more readily receive spiritual joys." Now, uh, people make similar arguments about what happened with uh, Christmas, right? That Yule and things like that turned into Christmas? Well, it's not necessarily an argument. I mean, that's what happened. Um, Christmas, Easter, all those things. It's kind of like when you pass by a building now with a big sign on it in a very specific font that says something like Hollywood Nails. And you know for a fact that the building used to be a Hollywood video? Sure, yeah. And before that, it was... uh, Peter Pan pizza. (laughs) So they just restructured the signage rather than redoing it all over again. Samhain became the church's Hollywood video, which I think is the first time that sentence has ever been said. We don't call it (laughs) Samhain. Well, we got there eventually. But at the very least, it became the celebrations of All Saints Day and All Souls Day observed on November 1st and 2nd. All Saints Day came first and was meant to honor the saints of the Catholic Church. Villagers were also encouraged to dress up in costume for this holiday, but instead of doing so to scare away evil spirits, it was meant to be a dress-up kind of day of Christian saints. Oh, this is not nearly as fun as putting on the deer skull. I mean, some of them had pretty gnarly deaths, so if you're doing like a real 
serious interpretation, it's still scary. Sure, a lot of costumes of being crucified or burned. Yeah. Churches at this point would display their saints' relics, but for those churches too poor to afford any, the parishioners would dress up as these saints along with angels and devils. So this was their kind of version of Halloween celebration and parading. Yeah, by the way, uh, this year Caroline and I will be dressing up as Saint Wanda and Saint Strange. (laughs) Yes, we're going to be Wanda the Scarlet Witch and Doctor Strange and our dog Poe will be uh, Strange's little cloak, and he's going to be running around as the little cloak. Yeah, so Carrie gets a little preview of my uh, what my hair will look like <laughs> in, in four years, presumably. And Sean just gets to see my usual red hair, I guess. <laughs> it was supposed to be a little purr. I couldn't get there. <laughs> it's a gag, more like. Um, the dead would also now be remembered with prayer instead of sacrifices, though food still got into the mix. People were now taught to bake soul cakes, which were little pastries and breads, to offer in exchange for blessings. Now that almost, we have king cakes at Lent, but... uh... It's probably, it probably comes from that, to be honest. Uh, Soul cakes would be given to the village's poor, and thus they would pray for the dead family members of those who had bestowed the cakes. Over time, this custom grew more popular, and eventually young men and boys would be going from house to house singing souling songs and asking for ale, food, or money instead of the cakes, which is like our current tradition of trick-or-treat. Well, and it's also like wassailing. Yes, and it's also like Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Well, yeah, but wassailing is something that uh, the Brits do around Christmas, right? Yeah, Christmas carols, basically. It's It's all threaded together. The bonfires stayed too, but instead of appeasing the sun, they were lit with the intention of keeping the devil away. Or burning your mare after a bad <laughs> harvest. Is this so like in the This is the Christian version, so no burning the mare. But in the nine hundreds, or I guess this is after a thousand, after um after Christians have more or less uh this been is in charge this of all started of closer to like the six hundreds. Now, All Souls Day, celebrated uh, November 2nd, joined the party somewhere in the 9th century. And it was really originally a special commemoration for the dead, and eventually as a feast for the departed. And these holidays got kind of lumped together into one celebration called Hallowtide or Hallowmas, due to a lot of the festivities bleeding over from the evening of November 1st into the next day. During the medieval times, this particular evening began to be known as All Hallows' Eve, which became Halloween, with the Halloween apostrophe in. Yeah, when's the N? Why, where does the N come from? Um, it's, I think it's Halloween evening. Oh, evening, yes. yes. So it's Halloween and then just Halloween, no apostrophe. So we have the church to thank for the name of the holiday, ironically enough even though um, a lot of them are anti-Halloween nowadays. I, the church, I haven't seen any anti-Halloween messaging from the church. I mean, just vaguely, like, I don't know, they're against Harry Potter. Uh, the British Isles were still the biggest participants in Hallowmas, a.k.a. Halloween. Aren't, aren't we against Harry Potter now? We're against J.K. Rowling. <laughs> I, I choose to believe those books were written by Anonymous. Um, the British would put carved out turnips with lit candles in them on their gateposts to ward off evil spirits. 
Soul cakes were still baked and stacked by the door. When the town's poor visited house after house to beg for food, they would offer prayers for the dead in exchange. On Halloween 1517, Martin Luther instituted a series of religious reformations that would temporarily halt the observance for Halloween for many Europeans, including the ending of saint worship, which meant no All Saints Day, so no All Hallows Eve. Uh, just in countries where the Reformation really took yes, hold. Yes, of course. Right? Eventually, these Protestants would find another holiday where they could celebrate many of these autumnal traditions, Guy Fawkes Day. November 5th began to be recognized as the anniversary of the gunpowder plot, where Catholic revolutionary Guy Fawkes, along with other leaders, attempted to blow up the Protestant sympathetic House of Lords at the meeting of par- Parliament on November 5th, 1605. That's a big sum up. <laughs> yeah, now the the Protestant government had a very good reason for for pointing and going like, don't do this. You know, we should all sure. burn burn him in effigy every single year. And it's a law that you have to do it. Um, but for the people, it was kind of a fun drink up. Yeah. When Guy Fawkes' plan failed, he was arrested and executed. Uh, I think you could hear more about that on our Tower of London episode. And in 1606, just like you said, Sean, Parliament declared November 5th a day of national thanksgiving to celebrate the triumph of Protestants over Catholics. And many traditions were borrowed from Halloween for it. The eve of Guy Fawkes Day became a time of mischief and pranks. Boys dressed in costume and begged for lumps of coal to burn their effigies of Guy Fawkes. And the Pope. And the Pope. And of course, we have massive, still today, uh, Guy Fawkes Night bonfires, which give the holiday its alternate name of Bonfire Night. And they still burn Guy Fawkes, and they still burn the Pope, but now they burn whoever they don't like as well. So just, exactly. You saw a lot of Donald Trump's the last couple of bonfires. Yeah, we saw apparently. some Boris Johnson's, I'm sure. <laughs> but, you know, when us humans like a thing, we make the thing keep happening, even if we have to modify it for a bit. We like big fire. We switch big fire up to be, it's an anti-Catholic big fire, whatever. Right. And it's funny that all the other stuff, the trick-or-treating kind of gets put back in. Yeah. It's all the fun stuff. It's like, well, we like this. We'll, We'll keep sticking it back in. So after the break, we'll discuss how these very European celebrations left the continent, came to the New World, and transition transition to the very American holiday of Halloween that we know today. I we're we're already past the threshold for. There's not going to be any human sacrifice in this episode, is there? No. Huh. Sorry. <laughs> You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. In our first segment, we heard, I don't know, I guess about the first half of Halloween history. 
Pretty much. It's been about 2,000 years, it sounds like, <laughs> that people have been doing Halloween-style activities. And um, we just heard about the first thousand, about Samhain and about the uh, origins of All Saints Day mm-hmm. and All Hallows' Eve. Caroline, uh, I suppose now we're going to start getting to some traditions that really feel uniquely modern and, and uh, feel f- much more familiar to us. Yeah. So we're in the 1600s now, which means that people are starting to emigrate to what would eventually become known as the United States of America. So how did we get back from Halamas and Guy Fawkes Day to the more pagan roots of Samhain to create our modern Halloween? Like any American tradition, it was a long and winding road to get there. Oh, I thought you were going to say, like any American tradition, it was toy makers and greeting card companies. (laughs) Well, nowadays, yes. Many of the first settlers of America were Anglican, a religion developed from Catholicism due to Henry VIII's divide with the Roman Catholic Church. And yes, there's plenty more on that in our Henry VIII episode. But basically, the Anglican calendar still contained many of the same celebrations that the Catholic one did, including All Saints Day as a first-class feast day, and All Souls Day as an unofficial holy day. Are they still doing the costumes at this point? Um, you know, it's, it's hard to say what they were doing at, at this point, uh, but they did observe at least All Saints Day. So perhaps since settle- so settlement began at almost the same time as Guy Fawkes Day did, those in America stuck to the original Hallamas traditions rather than trading them completely for the new Guy Fawkes Day ones. Well, and what do we care about Parliament? Guy Fawkes, <laughs> that happened 3,000 miles away. Well, they were physically and spiritually more distant from England at this point, and so they didn't have the same connection to the new holiday, but they did still celebrate it somewhat with bonfires and effigies because it's fun. Yeah, it's fun to do bad stuff and burn things. <laughs> yes, but generally, they stuck with what was familiar, and that was Halamas. As we know from our Witch Trials episodes, more religions mixed in as the 1600s wore on, including both paganism and Puritanism. Both had their own beliefs about how the world worked, and those would affect how these things were celebrated. There was a strong belief in magic, though whether or not magic was evil really depended on who you asked, and if they maybe had a buckle on their hat or something. They didn't have buckles on their hats, but you know what I mean. But yeah, folk magic was uh, much more a part of people's daily lives than uh, modern people realize, right? Yes. The Revolutionary War loosened the Puritan hold on the nation, and we became, ostensibly, a place where anyone was free to practice any religion. More people were coming to America from other places than just England and moving further away from the East Coast where we had originally settled. And of all the immigrant groups that came to America, the one that had the most influence on our modern Halloween was the Irish. Oh, I thought you were going to say the skeletons. (laughs) No, everyone's a skeleton, but not everyone's Irish. That's true. We're a special breed. Well, we do like a party. You do. Now, uh, the opposite of a party, the famines of the 1800s pushed a minimum of a a million Irish Catholics to the United States in search of a better life. The Irish celebrated both All Saints and Souls Days, being Catholics, but also still observed elements of the ancient pagan beliefs that began in their homeland. In Ireland, even after the rise of Christianity, young girls would gather together secretly at midnight to perform divinations with apples, fire, mirrors, and yarn, most of the time believing that they would be able to find out who they would marry from these practices. Revelers still went from house to house on Halloween, and turnips were still carved and candled to light their way. 
As they still observe these traditions after their move to America, it seems others began to do so as well. These are all Catholics. Yes. The biggest source of the popularity of American Halloween comes from those wonderful weirdos, the Victorians. And we're talking about American Victorians here. Oh, the the weirdest of them all. (laughs) Yes. We know that those in the Victorian era were generally a bit more morbid and certainly closer to death practices than we are today. Think of how they would often have funerals in the home or dress in black to mourn or even wear mourning jewelry made of hair or pictures of the dead. You know what they were also really into, and I bet this plays in here, kind of classicism. They were into Roman and Greek stuff and they were into reaching into the past and pretending there were these long-standing traditions. Mm -hmm. The concept of honoring the departed would have made much sense to the Victorians and indeed Halloween festivities made their way into high society by the late 1800s. However, they began to modify the holiday to be more entertaining and to have less of a link to Catholicism, preferring to hearken back to the quaint Celtic origins. So basically like what you just said, they thought it was more fun to be attached to these ancient peoples rather than the Catholics who they maybe didn't like. Yes, and uh, provided provided it's not attacked with the usual stuffy Victorianness, mm-hmm. uh, that can be very fun. Mm-hmm. The first articles were published in ladies' magazines in the 1890s on how to host a Halloween party, with decorating and food ideas included. When was dunking for apples invented, and why? Uh, Bobbing for apples goes back to the Festival of Pomona, so it was an ancient practice. Wow. Uh, Why do we only do it at harvest festivals now? Well, that's when we have apples. Because it's the harvest of apples, yeah. According to Banatine, quote, In 1881, St. Nicholas Magazine intoned a death knell for the Old World holiday, forever transferring Halloween from the realm of ancient superstition and primitive power to the realm of jolly frolic. And then they quote the magazine, Belief in magic is passing away, and the customs of All Hallows' Eve have arrived at the last stage, for they have become mere sports repeated from year to year like holiday celebrations. Uh, That... Does that sound to you like it's written with kind of a, uh, it's a shame, these kids today don't get the magical significance? A little, yeah. Periodicals began to portray Halloween as a fun night of mystery and divination with a touch of romance. So, oh yes, this is very Victorian. They did love a seance. Mm Mm-hmm. By the end of the century, most Americans had now heard of Halloween, uh, at the very least through the printed word. Initially, only young people participated in Halloween parties as there was much there was such a focus on the divination magic of figuring out your future significant other that it was often seen as absurd for married people to participate. They well, it's like a bunch of like if we went out with a, a, with some couples and we all made those uh, paper fortune tellers and went like my husband's yes, going to live in a much. box because at this point that was one of the main things it was it was a matchmaking event he'll be a one two three four (laughs) five mailman (laughs) yes they were matchmaking events and it's likely this is because of the dark and mysterious trappings which made things kind of well sexy for the prim buttoned up victorians 
Quote, the party giver's house was completely dark, lit only by jack-o'-lanterns. Silent, dark-robed figures led the guests to the cellar, the kitchen, or some other darkened room before they could remove their wraps. Parties almost always involved bobbing for apples, burning nuts in the fire, mirror divinations, snap apple, apple paring, and the test of the three bowls. Really apple-heavy. Yes. So I'm going to kind of go over what a few of these things are the test of the three bowls i must know i don't know there was no explanation for what that is and i couldn't really find a a, i mean a good way to google that i guess it's three bowls of greenish yellow liquid (laughs) one is pea soup and the other two you don't want to eat so the burning nuts all right this is and you know feel free to try it nowadays i mean these are old-timey customs so I think there's a cream that'll clear that right up. <laughs> this is a game where you throw a couple of nuts into a fire and um, give them each the name of a prospective partner. So you know which one you're throwing in. Okay. The one that crackled or jump would represent fickleness. Someone with a fickle love. The one that burned steadily represented undying affection. So hence, this is the person that you wanted to hook up with. Is this... The Victorian version of the game people play on TikTok where all the faces scroll above their head? Um, a little. A little more specific, but yes. This is my husband. Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, so mirror divinations. Now, again, telling the future, asking who you're going to marry, that, in this time, that was like the biggest thing for Halloween. This is how you'd identify your future lover. So a young woman usually would sit in front of a mirror on Halloween, cut an apple, of course, into nine slices and hold each piece on the tip of a knife before eating it. So if you're going to do this, folks, please be careful. Upon finishing, the face of her husband was said to appear in the mirror over her shoulder. And this is a really, really prevalent bit of imagery in like the late 1800s and early 1900s. Um, I collect antique Halloween stuff as much as I can. I usually just find postcards if I'm lucky. And I have a couple, and they're very hard to find. I have a couple of Halloween postcards that have like a woman looking into a mirror and like a strange face behind her. That's awesome. Um, Do you think as the as the image or the idea of this magic being useful and practical faded away, um, kids were left with just the application of this kind of thing to scare themselves, and this turned into, <laughs> like, like, Bloody, Bloody Mary? Mary? Uh, probably, yeah. Um, I think also there's an interesting thing about how, much like Christmas, we didn't really have imagery yet for what Halloween looked like. Um, so at this point, there was a lot of this mirror stuff. There was a lot of jack-o'-lanterns. Um, not a lot of skeletons, uh, barely any on things like postcards and stuff. No skeletons? No, not at this point, because it was seen as a little too morbid and grotesque. Um, sometimes witches would be included, but they'd be wearing colorful garments. That's big talk from the Victorians who photographed (laughs) all of their child corpses. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're still kind of figuring out the traditional Halloween imagery at this point. And um, just to wrap it up, snap apple is just bobbing for apples. Or or it's like um, when you hang the apple from a string and then you, you try to get it. It's like a like an apple pinata that you try to bite. So it's like uh, bobbing for apples, but with concussion risk. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> Costumes, too, began to gain popularity for the holiday. Sexy nurse, <laughs> sexy firefighter, sexy nun. <laughs> 
Well, this was mostly in the early 20th century. Um, But as life became more serious, especially to the women who were spending more time campaigning for their rights than planning parties, the holiday was reinvented once more as a children-focused festival. The grotesque and eerie imagery and traditions of Halloween were edited or censored to appeal appeal more to children. Even less skeletons. Get more flesh on them. <laughs> yes. Only fat people. Uh, and how-tos published for parents to create a fun holiday for their kids began to be published. The first community-wide official Halloween celebration was in Anoka, Minnesota in 1920 and has been annually observed ever since, giving the city its title as the Halloween capital of the world. Since the 20s, Anoka has thrown Halloween parades, decorated its streets, and held pumpkin bowl football games, as well as dances and other festivities. These kinds of celebrations spread across America and more town-wide parties popped up across the country in the 20s and 30s. Despite the cancellation of the holiday in some areas during the wartime of the 1940s... Because all the candy had to be sent to the front. (laughs) Well, many other places held up Halloween traditions anyway, believing they were morale-building, brought people together, and gave folks something fun to think about for a while. You know, instead of Nazis. The post-World War II years are what really kicked off the modern Halloween that we know and love today. Lots of Rosie the Riveter costumes. (laughs) Well. After the boys got back home. As many of us know, there was a baby boom just after the war ended, and so the youth population of the country sharply increased. Considering that by this point, Halloween was such a kid-centric holiday, it became more popular than ever once there were tons more kids to celebrate it. Instead of official town-wide festivities, trick-or-treating became, became the name of the game. And after all, it was much cheaper for local governments that way. Some had trick-or-treated as early as 1920. An article the same year from Ladies Home Journal wrote, quote, It is Halloween, a group of hilarious youngsters in costume, including two Charlie Chaplins, a Topsy, a gingerbread man, and an Indian, noisily approach the front door of a large house, ring the bell, and when the owner herself comes to the door, greets her in a chorus with, Nuts! Nuts! We want nuts! 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 We want nuts! It's gotten catchier over time, huh? Yeah, it's no trick-or-treat, smell my feet, give me something good to eat, but we had a few more decades to work on that. At least they're not threatened to pull down anybody's undergarments. <laughs> uh, so trick-or-treating, as we know it, began in the wealthier areas of the East and eventually spread fully across the country with every kid having heard of or participated in the custom by the 50s or so. And please remember from our Real Candyman episode, no child has ever been poisoned or injured by candy given by a stranger at Halloween. Yeah, this year with all the talk about fentanyl, the... Um The hysteria is greater than ever around Halloween candy. Yes. Uh, It's good to check your child's candy, but the belief that scores of kids are poisoned by evildoers each year via their Halloween loot is just not true. Never happened. Not once. No. Not by a stranger. We, We have the dad. We have a couple of accidents, but never a stranger. I've been seeing a lot of uh, fentanyl might be in the Halloween candy panic memes on Facebook, as you mentioned, Sean. And this is only the most recent update to the razor blades and apples poison and candy bars hysteria. But don't worry, we'll talk about that a little more in our news segment. So now, while America remains the number one celebrator of America, 
uh, yes, of Halloween across the world, our version of the holiday has also spread back out to some of the original Samhain countries as well as others. Well, that only makes sense because we, um, for most of the last century, made all of the kind of most relevant and impactful media, movies, television shows, everything uh, that the whole world saw. Much of it, yes. So they're going to they're gonna see our Halloween, and it's mm-hmm. going to look like fun. Yes. The 1990s saw the beginning of Halloween celebrations being observed in countries like France, Germany, and Poland, mostly due to changes in culture, like the end of the Cold War. In the UK, Ireland, and other originally Celtic countries also have adapted the Samhain traditions into Halloween, with England especially getting into the classic Halloween spirit. Uh, and I'm sure it depends on place to place, but you got traditional decor, trick-or-treating, and costume parties. You got to save some juice because you still have bonfire night five yes, days later. exactly. And... Um, I have some cousins in England, and I remember them asking me, like, do you guys really do all this for Halloween? So I think it's still, it's not at the level it is here. Nothing over is. There. There's too much money to be made here. That's, <laughs> that's what it is. There's, there's this Halloween industrial complex of all the, um, I mean, every town has several stores that just exist during September and October. Spirit Halloween, Halloween City, Spooky Town. Yeah, I've been there. (laughs) But really, it seems Halloween has mostly been adopted by other countries as another excuse for young folks to get together, have fun, and celebrate. And here in America, it's been that way for decades, going on centuries now. Before we finish, let's go through uh, your trivia cheat sheet, an incomplete list of modern Halloween traditions and their ancient origins, just to sum it all up. Trick-or-treating. Uh, this is where the Viking uh, Eivor dressed up with the deer head and uh, uh, went around singing at people's doors to get them to give him beer. Sure. Also, originally from the poor and then young men and boys go going souling from house to house to ask for soul cakes, ale, and treats. Jack-o'-lantern carving. So this originated with turnip carving and lighting, and then this became pumpkins upon moving the tradition to the new world because they're just better lanterns and and cooler i guess we have them i think they're a new world thing right they didn't have pumpkins Uh, they were first referred to as jack-o'-lanterns around the 1840s with the origin of the name coming from a scientific phenomenon then known as jack-o'-lantern lights which were mysterious well still are mysterious lights seen at night flickering over marshes and they're now also known as will of the wisp so it was thought of as this guy named Jack you know, <laughs> of the lantern out there I kind of leading you. No, yeah. Maybe. And, yes, and, and Will of the Wisp. Yeah, sure. So Jack and Will are out there just trying to lead you into the uh, forest. Well, it's the swamp, certainly. Apple picking and bobbing. We've gone over this originally from the celebration of harvest goddess Pomona in Ro- Roman tradition, which was marked especially with apples and other orchard fruits. Dressing in costume. That was first to distract or confuse evil spirits, then to observe the Catholic saints, and then eventually just to have some friggin' fun. Yeah, just to observe Jason and Trini from the Power Rangers. (laughs) Speaking to the dead. 
Originally, Samhain was all about connecting to our ancestral dead. Since the times of spiritualism, we've used Halloween to be extra spooky and maybe break out the Ouija board, have a seance. And there's a lot of kind of modern Halloween side mythology about like the barrier between living and dead being thinner on this day. Yes. It's like a popular children's Halloween movie idea. Well, I think you are quoting Hocus Pocus there, but that's that is the general or under cons- wraps, definitely a children's. <laughs> that Disney is film. true. Yes, um, I mean it. It was basically that be- belief was that the veil is thinner. That's why they're able to cross over. Divination. We know the Druids began the practice of using Samhain to predict the future, and then young women, especially particularly during the Victorian times, began to use the holiday to try and divine the name of their future husbands because. We like witchcraft. Mash, the fortune teller thing. Those are all witchcraft. We were all witches as kids. Sorry to tell you. (laughs) Black cats. Now, unfortunately, this is because they have long been objects of superstition. They they, they are still um, the hardest kittens to get adopted at shelters because people are still superstitious. Superstitious. And also, they don't photograph well, which is a problem for black dogs, too. Yeah, but they're a lot harder to get dirty. Yes. I mean, I love black cats, Um, but they've been associated with witchcraft since at least Puritan times. And they possibly, or at least cats, were some of the sacrifices that the Druids made. Um, Well, the Egyptians, too. Well, the Egyptians worshipped cats. That was a little different. But if you were making a sacrifice to Bast, certainly, you'd kill a little kitten. (sighs) It feels, feels against the point of it. Worship a cat, you kill a cat. I don't know. I, I know, but Bob Breyer talks about kill how they were fish. Cats like fish. Bob Breyer talks about how there were factory farms where they would like yeah. raise thousands of kittens just to just to kill them as kittens and sell them to pilgrims who were going to the Bast Shrine. Well, uh, people are still superstitious about them to this day, and it's often suggested that you should keep your black cats in on Halloween night because some people are dicks and. Um, do bad things to them. So just don't put them outdoors. Witches. They do love to be outdoors. Well, don't put them out on Halloween night. People are dicks. Well, yeah, you could say the same about jack-o'-lanterns. Yeah, but that's not a living creature. In my heart it is. So uh, the, the iconography of witches at Halloween is likely from the fear of witchcraft that came from England and the early Americans uh, who associated witches with all things scary. Hence associating with Halloween. When did we get the Skellingtons back in there? I think that was probably mid-century, you know, when we sort sort of developed what the iconography really was. And when it was cool to start incorporating death yes, stuff back in. Pretty much. Uh, and masquerade parades. So similar with costumes, it began with the Celts and continued with the Catholics for very different reasons. And now you have little kids running around doing their Halloween parades all over. I'll finish this episode with a quote from Halloween Nation, which references a favorite book of mine. Quote, Consider this. When the editors of the horror fiction anthology October Dreams asked all 28 contributors to describe their favorite Halloween memory, more than half went back to when they were kids, to more or less happy memories. Our childhood Halloweens can live like tiny beasts inside of us, coiled and ready to deliver their emotional charge at the slightest prod. Moreover, because Halloween starts in the imagination and moves out into the world, there's a freedom you won't find in other holidays. 
And I think that sums up so much of what I personally love about it and why so much of my identity is tied up into it, because it's kind of a handy way to describe just being spooky. Um, There's so much joy and creativity and openness that one could only wish that it happened more than one spooky evening a year. Yeah, because I mean, just think of all the candy. If we had another another Halloween, that's like you, more Charleston shoes. I don't think that's ever stopped you, Sean. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. It's a special Halloween edition of Lizard People Big World. (gasps) There's one over there. Washington Post reports on the latest Halloween fear gripping boomers of the nation. So-called rainbow fentanyl, a multicolored candy-sized version of the addictive and potentially deadly synthetic opioid. Both law enforcement and elected officials have warned of the supposed dangers that fentanyl-laced candy presents to children. Quote, We're coming into Halloween. Every mom is worried right now. What if this gets into my kid's Halloween basket? Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel said in an interview last month on Fox News, which, the Post notes, has avidly pushed this story. For their part, the DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, has called Rainbow Fentanyl a deliberate attempt by drug traffickers to drive addiction among kids and young adults. Though they clarified these comments later to Fox News, saying, We are not seeing it in elementary schools. We have not seen it with Halloween candy. Fox chose to run the comments with the on-screen banner, Rainbow Fentanyl Warnings Ahead of Halloween. So, But as the Post says, the link between children and rainbow fentanyl, which differs only in its color and packaging from other fentanyl-based street drugs, appears to be theoretical at best. Speaking of best, Joel Best, a... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a University of Delaware great, great job, a University of Delaware professor who studies modern urban legends compares these fears to urban myths about razor blades and apples and weed-infused gummy bears. And in terms of the latter, I think we can all be pretty secure in the assumption that cannabis users are not going to waste their edibles on some random kids. 
Well, and the same goes for fentanyl pills. Sure. Best, as we mentioned in our Real Candyman episode, points out that the fat points out the fact that no child has been seriously injured or killed from contaminated trick-or-treat candy from a stranger since data began being compiled in the mid-80s. Rainbow fentanyl didn't take off as a media phenomenon until the DEA issued a news release containing the original comments August 30th. Before then, the topic rated just a few dozen scattered news stories, most of them from local news sources, and all of them starting in mid-August, according to the Nexus database. A search of news reports since this time has only turned up one suspected accidental case of rainbow fentanyl ingestion involving a child. Though the hysterical media seems certain that this product is intended to hoodwink and kill children... The colorful, candy-like form of the drug is actually intended as a disguise for smuggling purposes and to differentiate it from other forms of fentanyl. Dealers aren't exactly the types to just give away expensive drugs to attempt to hook minors who wouldn't be able to afford the cost of being regular customers, of course. Uh, Quote, it's illogical, said Brian Marino, a toxicologist and addiction specialist at Case Western Reserve University Medical School in Cleveland. He added, quote, for all intents and purposes, the rainbow fentanyl story is nothing more than a moral panic. Though politicians on both sides of the aisle have spoken on the fentanyl concern, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer requested additional budget from Congress to combat fentanyl trafficking last month. It seems that this is all being spun politically, just like everything else based on fears. Well, fentanyl as a problem itself is Oh, it's, it's wild. Yes, of course. So we do need more money to come. Absolutely. That. And, and his fears were, I think, youth-focused as well. But uh, it leads to things like this. The conservative think tank The Heritage Foundation attempted to place the alleged threat in the context of inflation and its opposition to the Biden administration. Last week, they tweeted, quote, the price of Skittles jumped 42 percent from last year, not to mention the cartels are stuffing Skittles bags with deadly fentanyl. (laughs) Happy Halloween from the Biden administration. It's just stupid. Thanks, Obama. It's the same thing. (laughs) Yes. To wrap it up, we have about we here at the podcast have about the same feeling that Professor Joel Best has. Quote, I suspect we won't hear much about this on November 1st. And listen, if the worst comes to pass, we'll certainly eat our witches' hats and talk about it on the show. But until then, check your kids' candy, be smart, and don't live in fear. Enjoy the spookiness. It doesn't have to be scary. It's never happened once. Never with a stranger. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We sure will. Uh, Special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons who are supporting us over there on Patreon. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Ira, and let's give a big welcome, Carrie, to our newest patron, Kate Pope. Woo! 
Uh, Kate, we're so happy to have you on the Scary Squad. And uh, good news for Kate and everybody else. We are very, very soon going to be offering ad-free uh, listening, ad-free versions of our episodes. Just for patrons. Just for patrons uh, with an RSS feed that you can get through Patreon. So be on the lookout for that in the next week after you're hearing this. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot to do before Halloween, but probably probably right after. And we'll see you all next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.